Good afternoon. I'm Suzanne Freeman. I'm the president of the Friends of the Library, and we are so pleased and excited about our library. I'd like to welcome you to this program, which is one of the very best programs I think our library offers. also like to invite you, if you're not, to become a member of the Friends so that you can help us support this type thing. It's very exciting. Thank you for coming. Hi, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Tiffany Foster, and I work here locally at TVA. And joining me in the panels can be Renee Hoyas and Joanne Logan, and we're all just going to kind of introduce ourselves as we go through it. And what we thought we would do today is each of us take a chapter or two in the book and just kind of go over it briefly and our thoughts on it. And we're going to, so I'm going to start, and then followed by Renee and Joanne. And then we're going to go into kind of how our current jobs and kind of our interests kind of tie into and relevance to East Tennessee and what Maud Barlow was talking about and then kind of open up some more discussions on kind of how everyone can get involved and kind of what people are doing and what we should be watching out for. Um, like I said, my name is Tiffany. I'm a water resource specialist with TVA. And basically what that means is I work with a lot of um, local communities, whether governments and nonprofits, and try to do stream restoration projects. We write watershed restoration plans and grants and do a lot of monitoring for folks. Um, we work throughout the seven states in the Tennessee Valley, and it's a lot of fun. We actually get to see some really good water quality improvement and get some water quality protection involved. And so I'm going to start off talking about the introduction of Blue Covenant. And the first thing that um, kind of hit me when you read this is you see kind of people's comments about what they thought about the book. And Robert Redford had mentioned that, you know, when you turn the tap after reading this, you'll never think of tap water again. And it's kind of one of those things you always read book quotes, and you're like, yeah, okay, whatever, I'm going to keep reading. But for me, that was really true, and I, I hope that's true for everybody when they read it or when you get around to reading if you haven't had a chance. A lot of stuff just really hits home, and it's really striking to me. And even though I work in water resources for a living, and that's what I went to college for here at UT, um, a lot of the facts and a lot of points that she brings up are just a really great kind of resonating thing. It's like, hey, you know, it's... Yes, we may have some issues here, like you know, Georgia wanting just to move the borders, so they can have some Tennessee water, or um, some of the counties and towns we work with have some water shortages, and they talk about kind of watering and reducing water and saving. But there are a lot of areas globally that are truly, truly in dire straits. I mean, they are drastic situations. And I think that's something that we don't think about. I know I told a friend of mine's daughter, one of the things that's in the book um, talks about people reusing water. And it's not reusing like how I think about it, where I've got a rain bale out front and I can catch my water and use it to water my garden. Um, they're reusing water like their first go-around, everybody's brushing their teeth. And like their second go-around, they're taking their water they spit into a bucket and they're washing their vegetables with that. And then the third go-around, they're using that vegetable water to bathe with. And then it kind of keeps going and going and going. And... Um, Girl told us eight, and that was really striking to her. She's like, that is so gross. Why would anybody do that? I was like, well, if that's the only water you have, you know, that's what you do. I'm like, it's better than nothing. And she wasn't sure if it was better than nothing. She's like, well, you know, I can skip brushing my teeth. You know, she's eight, so you can understand that. But it's just one of the things that she opens up with was um, the World Watch Institute declaring that water scarcity may be the most underappreciated global environmental challenge of our time. I think she may be right. Two-fifths of the world's people lack proper sanitation and clean water. The number of children that are killed by diarrhea and other waterborne diseases are equal to the number of people killed in armed conflicts, all of them since World War II. And, I mean, it's just phenomenal when you think about how many people are affected by water supply, water pollution, and water scarcity, and how it seems like in our area we have a ton of water, but really when we think globally on a lot of issues, we need to be doing more to, see, to make sure we're protecting and safeguarding these things. And when you're thinking about some of the global things, she mentions about, okay, we may have a lot of water, and some areas may have a whole lot of water, but their waters are polluted. There's like 90% of developing countries discharge their waste just straight into their water systems. And I know this is no surprise to you guys, but just looking at how many countries, are, I guess, are considered developing or um, I guess not industrialized that are doing this was surprising to me. I mean, a lot of countries, you think, oh, sure, they're doing that. And they listen to Mary's in Australia and some places in Russia and places in Latin America where you think that some of these folks have good access, but they really don't. And it's a much more kind of reaching problem than I guess I had realized at first when we were looking into it. Um, even here in the U.S., we know we have polluted waters and we have some problems. We've got about 40% of our waters that are not safe to swim or to drink or to fish in. I mean, we're, you know, 
we like to think we're the United States, where you know we've got all this technology and all this cool stuff going on. But we have a lot of issues. So you can imagine if you're a developing country that doesn't have the technology that's trying to find money for food. Um, there's some serious problems. One of the other issues that she hits on is groundwater depletion. And it kind of goes along with surface water. You know, it's the more we dirty up the surface waters and the more our populations are increasing, the more we need to find water somewhere. So we're going, looking to groundwater. Normally that's great because aquifers are great recharging and we can, you know, put in wells and use water and then it gets replenished through the natural hydrologic cycle. Well, some of the problems that are kind of coming together to form this perfect storm are that we are increasing our population. And as the population is increasing, our water use is going up even at a greater rate. So we are actually, you know, using a lot more of this resource than we had originally predicted. And also as we pollute more of our surface water, we're going to groundwater and try to use that as more accessible water. So it's kind of putting a lot of strains where we hadn't thought about, you know, there would be strains. She also kind of goes in and talks about some things, and you all may be more familiar, it was called like a virtual water trade and virtual water. And I thought it was an interesting term some of everything that we use, whether it's you know, this plastic microphone or the clothing I'm wearing um, or the water bottles we're carrying, you know, products take water to make and everything is consumptive as far as you know, the products and things we do. And she says, so there's a lot of water exporting and we don't think about it. So we have a lot of countries, especially in developing nations, that are trying to make, whether it's coffee or whether it's cheap plastics, whether it's um, some kind of monoculture that you know, the global north is wanting, they're trying to develop these and produce these products for us so they can export for money. And really what they're exporting is their precious water source. So not only are they kind of depriving some of their countrymen from the waters they need, they also could be polluting the waters that they have in the process just on this production. So it just kind of really keeps building and building and building. And I think Maud Barlow does a great job at, at building the case on how kind of far-reaching this is when we have the population going up, when we have the water being kind of used and abused in a lot of areas we don't think about. And she talks about, about how some of the high-tech solutions that the U.S. and a lot of other countries are kind of really been promoting, we've been promoting maybe the last, you know, 50 years, really are kind of part of the problem. We're thinking that we can maybe, I guess, in energy and in water resources, sometimes kind of think ourselves or create ourselves out of a problem. And some of the things that they're talking about are dams and diversions and the um, desalination. And I guess dams, you know, TVA, it's a great thing for me to be talking about. You know, we have a lot of them, and big dams can cause problems. They are good, I guess, here locally, we've got, you know, generation, there's some flood reduction, but they also cause problems as far as, you know, disruption of river flows, aquatic life, and there's some studies that look at dams being a problem. Actually, they're linking it to climate change. They're saying if you have a big enough dam that you have, um, some of the organic material is actually kind of rotting under the submerged land, and it's emitting methane. Methane is a greenhouse gas. I really didn't, hadn't really thought about that, to be honest. But I thought that was interesting. Some, some of these giant dams that we have are actually causing those kind of additional problems. So I guess while she wasn't advocating so to tear down all the dams we have now, just um, some of the countries that are still currently planning and building dams, not necessarily kind of in what we consider kind of our developed area, but a lot of other countries are still talking about putting these big projects. And I think her call was kind of like, hey, maybe this isn't a great way to go. You know, yes, we have some, we're leaving them, but maybe we shouldn't continue this project. And also we have the diversions, and that we hear a lot about here and other places. That's where you're taking water from one area and you're, you know, piping it to another area. We do it locally a lot. It's how, you know, obviously I get water to my tap. Someone diverted water from Tennessee, and I'm thankful that I have water out of my faucet. Um, but we're talking about doing it in areas where you're moving it into a faraway watershed. And a lot of times it's to support big agribusiness or to industry. Some of the big water piping and water pipelines are moving, you know, millions of gallons per day of water out of one country into another. And some of it's become a problem recently in Europe and some of the um, Asian countries in the Middle East because they're hitting, they're pumping out of the aquifers. They're pumping groundwater. And as you know, groundwater doesn't stop by nation boundaries. So, you know, several nations may be all working off the same groundwater chunk. And so if you've got one country that's just pumping out a whole bunch and they're diverting it to their folks, then you've got a couple other countries, you know, that maybe don't have the money to start doing that yet that are hurting. Um, so that was something she said we really need to kind of pay attention to how we're diverting waters and how people are kind of claiming and grabbing waters for themselves and not necessarily thinking about it in a more of a global way. And I guess the other big thing about the high-tech solution was um, the desalination 
And it's basically, which you all have heard about, it's where you're removing salt from either brackish water or, like, seawater. And they can do it either through evaporation or through, like, the membrane filtration. You know, it kind of seems like on a really small scale, like, that's a pretty simple, cool thing to do. We've got plenty of seawater, no problems. Saudi Arabia has, like, 25% of all these plants worldwide. And the reason why they do is because they have a whole ton of money, because it's a really expensive thing to do. It also has some other environmental problems with it as well. One of the biggest things, it's a very high energy use technique. Um, it takes a whole lot of energy um, and a whole lot of water pr to produce desalinized water. It's kind of a weird thing, but it's almost cost prohibitive in a lot of areas. Um, and one of the other disturbing things about it is in the process of doing this, like the process of producing a lot of things, there are toxic byproducts. Um, so this is the brine water that has a lot of heavy metal contamination in it. And in many countries, this is discharged straight back to the water source. And so it kind of starts this weird cycle where we've taken in, in some cases, polluted water, cleaned the salt out, and put back just more polluted water. So we're not really doing ourselves any favor by adopting kind of this method. So I'm not really sure how they're going to work that out in those other countries. I think Austria, they said, was doing it. Some of the other European countries were kind of looking in this as folks are getting kind of more desperate, as they put it. I still kind of agree that technology is not really a great way to, to go about it. A lot of these countries that are trying these techniques as far as new dams and diversions and desalination, you'd like to think they're focusing more on kind of keeping waters within their watersheds, looking at kind of other, other means they could be doing things. And one of the last chunks that she talks about in the, in the first couple chapters is that our political leaders are failing us. I've felt like that a lot of times looking at a lot of these subjects. Um, kind of the more you read, you're kind of like frustrated, like why are people not more charged up? Why are things not happening? Kind of, and how is this allowed to go on? And when you think about, you know, people dying that shouldn't be dying because of dirty water, we think about, you know, us not having regulations or oversight, you know, in our country and other countries. I think it's a really good point that looking at, there needs to be some kind of movements both kind of here and beyond there. And she talks about that, you know, if we know these things are problems, why aren't, you know, they being brought up? Why is, you know, more organizations not getting involved? Why are more governments not putting stronger regs and doing other things? There's several things that I guess that are, um, some of the leaders are involved in that seem kind of to go against almost working on um, some of the water scarcity, water supply problems. Um, and I guess that's something we hope to kind of see, see changing. Um, I know she mentioned about the European plan. They've got some really great preliminary project plans involved and some tips that have been enacted now to start looking at water protection and making sure they're providing water for folks kind of within their dominion. But what was brought up throughout the book was that, you know, that's great. They're going to take care of, you know, their country, and that's huge, and that's wonderful, and a lot of underserved folks will be taken care of, but they're not really addressing the fact that some of the European countries are destroying waters in other countries. I think that's a really important thing to kind of pay attention to. If we can kind of move forward with this, Renee and Joanne will get kind of a little more into that and kind of the different organizations and kind of what's going on globally and what's going on as far as, you know, our world leaders and different groups that are trying to be involved and kind of the situations in other countries. But I just want to give you guys kind of a brief overview on the first chapter. Thanks, Tiffany. Uh, my name is Renee Oyos. I'm the executive director of the Tennessee Clean Water Network. The chapters that I'm going to tell you about talk a little bit more in depth about private ownership of water versus the public ownership. And the book makes a point about the water services being public and being private as being a contributor to a stable economy and a stable culture. And we don't really think about this that much because here in the United States, we have mostly public water systems here. When you have a privatized system, which means that your water system is owned by a company, they're going to be more interested in the bottom line and returning equity to their shareholders. And so services end up taking something of a, of a back seat. What we end up creating is a culture of people that have water and those that, that do not have water. I think one of the biggest things that she talks about in this book is, are we going to get to a point where we, we say there are some people that will not have water, and there are some people who can afford to buy it. Those are the ones that are going to have clean water. And it's an issue that's being faced far more in the developing world, or as she calls it, the global south, than is faced here. But we are having some local pressures. I spoke at a, at a local club, and a gentleman pushed back at me pretty hard when we brought up the, the topic of water conservation and water privatization, and he said, well, if you can't pay for it, then you shouldn't be able to have it. 
Now, that you know, sounds a little rough, but when you think of how we've been sort of moving towards the privatization of water, that kind of thinking is more prevalent than you would think. There really is no ability to own water, but you can own the infrastructure under which clean water is produced and then is transported throughout the different areas. Tiffany mentioned diversions. This state is one of the most heavily diverted states. I thought California, I'm from California, I thought California was heavily diverted. This place diverts like you wouldn't believe. Our water is basically controlled by a lot of utility districts, and they send water, all, they'll send water hundreds of miles away if they can get someone to buy it from them. And of course, in many ways, it comes at a price. The biggest drivers for these sorts of projects are the big global multinational corporations like the World Trade Organization and the, uh, the World Bank. And it's far more cost-effective for them to fund larger projects. So they fund things like the Seven Gorges Dam. Three Gorges. That is a huge, huge project, and it is millions and millions and even billions of dollars going in to create these dam structures when it's actually creating more problems than it's solving. We learned the dam lessons in the the 60s and 70s, and we're still learning about how dams are are altering our ecosystem. But we're exporting that technology pretty quickly, and we've got the big bucks to back it up. One of the things that these big multinational corporations do that's very stunning is that they hold these developing countries hostage, and they they use their water. They, They hold them hostage over their debt. And what they say to you is, small, struggling third world country... We'll forgive your debt, but we'll take your water in exchange. So if you're a third world country and you're not corrupt, you may say, well, that's actually kind of a good short-term deal because my water doesn't really cost me anything, and I can relieve all my debt. More corrupt companies may strike more complicated deals, but what this generally means is that these smaller developing countries then are sacrificing all of their water resources and creating poverty in their own countries, and it becomes this continuing cycle of poverty based on the privatization model. Has anyone here seen the movie Flow? Yeah, there's a very poignant scene in Flow where this Bolivian woman has a jug of water, and she says, this is all I can afford to buy for the week. To get here, I have to walk a couple of miles, and the roads are dirty. I can't wash my clothes because I need this to to clean, you know, to to cook um, and for, you know, basic sanitation. And I'm treated like I'm dirty and poor. And so that cycle continues. Now, the way water privatization works in other countries is that you pay to get access to water. And they have, in some cases, they'll have the water, say it's a spring and they've, they've captured the spring, they'll have a spigot with a key. And that key is your access. And the minute you turn that key, the meter starts running. So every drop is accounted for under the system. And so if you're very poor, you know, maybe $5 for four gallons of water doesn't seem like much. But when you're really poor, that could be two-thirds of your income. Then people are going to go back to the river. Now, here's the interesting thing about privatization. It doesn't encourage cleaning up rivers and streams. It really only encourages keeping that particular water source clean for those who can pay for it. So if you're not cleaning your rivers and streams and you're overpricing so poor people can't have access to water, you're driving those poor people back to cholera and other disease-laden streams, then you've got these people entering the healthcare system. And then they, they're so sick and poor, they can't go to work. And so the poverty of cycle continues. And this is why it's very, very important that water remain in the public domain. When you increase corporate ownership of water, you decrease the incentive to stop pollution. Because, again, it's all about who's got clean water and who can pay for it. So what often has happened in these privatized companies is they come in, they'll take over your water system, and they start reducing staff. It's one of the first things they do because, you know, they got that bottom line. So they're going to reduce staff. And then they're going to start shutting down services. And once they start doing that, let's say you have a question. You want to go to your private company and you want to look at their water quality monitoring. Well, all that stuff can be considered proprietary. That's proprietary information, and you don't get access to that. So now, under a public system, if I have a question about KUB's monitoring... I can simply do a Tennessee Open Records Act request, or I can just call over there. They're, they're pretty open. I think they'd give me their data. Or I could go to the state and do a file review and get the data. But once these companies become privatized, you have no access to that data. So what does this mean for Tennessee? Well, 
the book cites a lot of situations in other countries, so it's very easy to say, oh, well, that's the global south, that's the third world, they're unfortunate in so many ways, and, and, but that's not us. Well, it's coming to us, and it, it comes in different ways. For example, the 106th General Assembly, the state legislature, this was the state legislature's two years, it started last year, there were uh, 16 bad water bills, I want to say, and they were grouped into several categories. They, one was to just deregulate small streams. And this goes back to the, sort of the privatization model. So you deregulate these small streams, which means that if you're a developer, you don't have to get a permit if some small streams aren't really considered waters of the state. We'll just say that they're not part of the system, and then a developer can just culvert them or they can bury them, and you'll never know because there was never a permit. And in fact, all of that water then gets lost. There were a number of bills um, that would prohibit your right to know by reducing some of the strengths of the Water Quality Control Act. Things like if you're an anonymous tipper, TDEC would not be allowed to answer your caller and to investigate. There was another bill that said you could withdraw water at night and not need a permit. That, we think, was due to a Nestle issue. Well, TDEC says that it was because of a flow issue. When you get low flows during the day, you get increased water temperature. So if we let people withdraw at night, you don't get the temperature issue. But you still get a low flow issue. So, you know, uh, we're lost on both accounts. There was, uh, there's a couple of bills about, one was a nuisance bill. It's still in play. It says, basically, if you're harmed by someone in compliance with their permit, you can't sue for nuisance. And uh, just to give you an example of the kinds of permits we're talking about, Eastman Kodak can put over 800 pounds of nickel per day into the Holston River and be in compliance with their permit. So there was some, some interesting things there. But Nestle, this is interesting. I, do you guys realize that Nestle has a plant here? They have a bottled water plant up on the Red River? And they're doing a lot of withdrawals. They actually asked for, asked for a permit for increased withdrawals, and the network responded immediately with, they don't need more water. That creek is limited. And Nestle withdrew very quickly, and their attorney sent me a nasty gram, um, which I thought was interesting. Nestle's getting a lot of pressure because of the work, I think, of Maud Barlow and the U.S. Food and Water Watch. They backed off right away. In Giles County, Pulaski area, there was a big push. The Ice River Springs, a Canadian bottling company, tried to buy the local spring, and they carved out this great deal. We're going to take this spring, we're going to build this facility, we're going to give you back lots of clean water, and then we're going to take the rest of it and bottle it and send it to Utah or Italy or something like that. So that water was going to go right out of the watershed. I mean, that was the deal they carved. And and I think they thought that they were going to a largely rural community, but that community had fought off a landfill five years earlier, and they were already organized. So Ice River Springs got quite the surprise when the community kicked back. The first time I met Maud Barlow, I asked her about Ice River Springs, and she warned me. She said, those people play really dirty, and they did. They came back to Knoxville, actually, opened up an office, reorganized as a, as a Tennessee company, went back into the community and tried to split the community up. They went to one of the leaders and said, listen, here's the deal. I'll, uh, we'll make sure that you get the, you'll get a, a line directly to your community if you agree to sell you know, to us. And so there was a big rift in the community, and we spent a lot of time with them telling them that you know, once you sell to them, and they're often 99-year leases, you lose control and fast. Aaron, Tennessee, that's another area. There's a a guy that owns a spring, and he's bottling up his his personal spring, and he's going to have private water. Sort of reminds me of the wine industry. You know, you get your thousand bottles of premium wine. Now I think he's going to sell his thousand bottles of premium spring water. Um, Anything for a buck, I guess. So the bottom line for us at the network is the push is to keep your water resources in public hands, not in private hands. Um, you may have a lot of complaints about your utility district. You may not like it, but you have greater opportunities to get involved in decisions that affect your lives as long as these systems stay public and do not go to private hands. You get greater access to the information, and you get greater accountability because mostly those folks are living and breathing in your own communities, and they are sensitive to your requests. I'm going to turn it over to Joanne. Well, this is a great turnout today. First of all, let me introduce myself. My name's Joanne Logan. Um, I'm in, I teach environmental and soil sciences over at the University of Tennessee on the Ag campus. I'm teaching a large class this semester, 140 students in a class called Waters and Civilizations. 
And so we actually had this book as being the required book for the class, uh, which they can't complain too much about because I think a lot of them were able to buy it on uh, Amazon for about $11, so that was a, a bargain for them. It's just been really eye-opening for me as I teach these freshmen, sophomores. It's considered a general education class at UT, and I had them do their virtual footprints of water, and they were absolutely astounded. You know, these are students that think that they're all, you know, kind of environmental, and then they find out that they're consuming the equivalent of two Olympic-sized pools of water every year. You know, obviously not just in direct use, but, you know, indirect use, what we call virtual water, which is in all the goods and services. Uh, but anyway, the chapter that I was uh, looking at in the book was chapter four, which has to do with the water warriors. And I remember I, the movie Flow. I loved that movie. If you haven't had a chance to see it, uh, try to get a hold of it. I think it's at the UT Library. I think you can check it out there. You can watch it in the library. Oscar Rivera from Bolivia. I mean, I lived in Cochabamba for six weeks back in the 90s, and I guess I never thought much about the water that I was using in Cochabamba, which is where one of the, one of the first really large water wars where there was violence involved uh, happened in, uh, in the early 2000s. At the time, I mean, I just didn't think much about it. I've lived in Latin America for six years, and you just take water for granted when you're middle class or upper class in those countries. You have these little trucks that come around every day with these beautiful big bottles of water, and this guy lugs it up two or three flights of stairs and sticks it in this nice little cooler. In the middle class, like in the Dominican Republic and Ecuador and Bolivia, countries like that, you actually have a water cooler in your house. I mean, that's just kind of considered just a normal situation. And so, therefore, you know, I was never really thinking about all of the servants and all of the manual laborers and, and Cochabamba and, you know, what were they doing for water. And, well, I find out later that, of course, they were struggling with it, things like having to pay $20 a month for their water bill when, in fact, they're only earning a buck or two a day. I mean, that's practically impossible to be able to pay for that kind of, of a water bill. It's just crazy. I lived in Mexico City. They talk about Mexico City in Chapter 4 of the book. There you see, uh, rather than these water trucks with these beautiful blue water bottles, which are called agua potable or agua cristal, or they have all these beautiful names for this beautiful water, they just come in great big messy tanker trucks. <laughs> and they're spilling water all over the places. They're you know, pulling up to the neighborhoods. It just doesn't look, you know, as quite as safe as the water that I was buying in those great big bottled waters. And I know that their prices are absolutely outrageous in Mexico City of what they have to pay. And what happens is in a lot of the developing world, excuse me, especially Latin America, you have a situation of, uh, of a lot of slums. I mean, we have slums in our own country, obviously. But even slums in the United States, they basically have infrastructure, Right. You know, even poor apartments or whatever would have running water and have wastewater. But in places like Mexico City or in Port-au-Prince, which we've seen so much in the news lately, places like um, Rio de Janeiro, they don't. They squat. And so really the government doesn't feel pressured at all to provide them any infrastructure at all because they consider them squatters and therefore don't have any access to infrastructure whatsoever. And so that's what she's also talking about in that chapter is the fact that those poor people, you know, they've got them over a barrel, you know, the proverbial barrel of water because they have no power. They don't actually pay taxes, so the government says, well, we shouldn't really have to provide you any services because you don't really pay any taxes. Along those same lines, I keep on thinking, you know, as I read the chapter in the book, I'm thinking, why in the world is it happening so much in places like Latin America and Asia and Africa where they're trying to privatize, more so than in countries like Canada and the United States, uh, Australia to a lesser extent? And it's because of this general feeling that the government just can't do it. They're poor. The government, in a lot of cases, the governments are broke, which I guess we kind of are now too, but <laughs> that's maybe a newer thing for us. So the governments are broke. Um, they change frequently, the government power structures. Another thing that I think has a lot to do with the water privatization in these kinds of countries is that there's no civil service in most of these countries. So like all the water companies or the wastewater companies that we generally have public servants, you know, that work at those jobs and from what I've seen in the United States, they seem to be mostly good people. Like if you, I've had the um, KUB 
B folks come and talk to my class about, you know, what they do to clean up our water from the Tennessee River so that we can uh, have fresh tap water, safe tap water, all the purification that they do. It's this feeling of trust. It's like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like they're trying hard of the wastewater folks. I know we've got issues, but I mean, it seems like at least most of the folks are on the same page and they kind of have our best interests at heart. In a lot of developing countries, that's not the case uh, because they may not even be in their job in the following year. The minute the government changes in a country like uh, the Dominican Republic, where I lived for about four years, everybody down to the uh, laundry lady changes in, the, in every government building. So when you think of the janitors and the people washing the dishes and selling the coffee in the cafeteria, they all change. So there's, you know, it's kind of hard to get this buy-in to the infrastructure, to the public services, to the public works and stuff like that when you don't have that kind of longevity built into the system. So I think that's why the private companies are able to kind of prey on them. It, it's almost like they come in and they say, well, your government can't do this for you. You know, look at the failing, you know, pipes and the, the, the dams that are cracking and everything. And people are looking, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, it doesn't look so hot to me. You know, obviously this private company is probably something we should consider because it sounds like, you know, they can come in and do a better job. But as she points out in her book, especially like in the case of Guayaquil, which is just a disaster. I've, I've lived in Guayaquil for a while in, in Quito and in, uh, in Ecuador. I mean, it's just a mess down there. They just constantly are having wastewater leakages and just all kinds of um, problems with not complying with their contracts and things like that. So then when Quito came along and said, well, gee, you know, we should do what Guayaquil's been doing, which is having this private water, the folks in Quito went, whoa, you know, maybe not. You know, it hasn't gone all that well in Guayaquil, so we probably shouldn't do that in Quito. So it's just, as I said, it's just like this idea that the private companies are coming along to basically save the local communities or the large cities because they have convinced the people that the government can't provide the infrastructure. And I just see that as one of the major reasons why they're being so successful in places like Latin America and Africa. And, you know, unfortunately, they're probably right to a little bit of an extent. I mean, I don't think they come in and do the greatest job but I think they do have the evidence, and, and I, I can see if I was a person living in a poor little neighborhood in Rio de Janeiro and the government's not giving me any water and this truck's coming in with water, I'm feeling like I don't have any choice. But fortunately, according to this chapter in the book, World Water Forums have been meeting. I have kind of mixed feelings about them, but at least the social presence at the World Water Forums have been very much advocating public access to water and making uh, water basically a human right, just as you know any other important human right. So I think that's great that we do have a lot of uh, watch agencies, Tennessee Clean Water Network is a good example, looking out for us and making sure that our water resources are being protected. Chapter 4 is a little tedious. I'm thinking about my poor students that have to have a test on this on Friday because it goes through country by country and what's gone on. Uh, so if you do read the book, you might want to skim over some of that stuff because it, it does get pretty tedious with all the facts and figures. But uh, anyway, thank you very much. The new thing from Champion that's just recently come out. What can you tell us about that deal? Well, it's actually called Blue Ridge now. They've changed ownership a couple of times, actually. They have a permit pending with the state of North Carolina, and um, the permit is about, well, the amount of pollution they can put in the Pigeon River. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the state gives out permits to pollute industry, and it's through the National Pollution Discharge Elimination System Program. And if you notice, elimination, pollution elimination is part of that permit. But often we, we find when we look at permits that they're not eliminating pollution enough. <laughs> the goal was to go to zero, and we're not there yet. But that permit, had, there's some issues with color. They have this thing called color. And um, Blue Ridge would like to be allowed to put in more color. 
and with color comes odor, and color is, is not natural. It's a part of a chemical, and this is the way they've sort of gotten around making Blue Ridge really figure out what's in that effluent coming out of that paper mill. So there was a huge hearing um, last week in Newport. 500 people showed up to protest this permit. So we'll see. I mean, the comments, are, I think the comment period is still open, and we'll see what North Carolina does. We have specifically asked the Tennessee Department of Environment and Conservation to step up. They sued the state of North Carolina several years ago over a similar issue, and we would like them to do it again. We're not sure if they will or not. So it's all pending. How many people here were at the Cock County hearing last Monday night? Not this week, but last week. Anybody? That was an amazing outpouring of of a democratic process. The North Carolina State Environmental Commission, the TDEC of North Carolina, has assumed that, in fact, they have found that the paper mills permit is in order. Uh, They are meeting the requirements. They have a variance, which I think the North Carolina will be inclined to extend. The hearing was about a, a situation that arises in North Carolina. It comes through Tennessee, through Cock County, in the Little Pigeon River. And those people are bearing the brunt of the mess that's created up at Canton. Uh, it's going to be real interesting. All of us need to work. The point person in Cock County is Amelia Taylor. She works for the county mayor. And any of you here who are interested in that, uh, I would would urge you to contact Amelia and see how you can get involved, because we have to get involved with the state of Tennessee. Uh, As Napoleon, one of the Napoleons said, that all battles are fought at the intersection of two maps. And this is a classic example of that. The problems in North Carolina, they issue the permit, the water comes through Tennessee. And we get the result. So it's going to be difficult to struggle with that, uh, but it's going to take a lot of pressure on TDEC to get involved. And I'm, I'm really not, I'm not a lawyer, I'm an engineer. Uh, but I'm really not, invo- uh, not sure how involved the state can get, but I can tell you that pressure won't hurt. And when you can get 500 people out to a public hearing in a, in a high school and sitting on hard seats, that's real democracy. Thanks. Any other questions? My name is Roberta Dennis. I wanted to ask uh, the TVA uh, lady. Um, in our county, in Rome County, we've had a real problem uh, with, uh, as you know, the contamination with the fly ash in Kingston. Mm-hmm. Is TVA at this time looking into the trucking contracts? Because some of these trucks that are coming out, they're depositing the fly ash in uh, for example, up in Harriman, they were putting it up into old coal shafts, which was contaminating the water system. Have you heard about that? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And um, uh, supposedly put a stop to that, which I, I haven't been able to verify at all. It hasn't even been any uh, mentioned that I know of in Rome County paper. Mm-hmm. But I just heard it through the grapevine. Also, the other thing is... Um, Horsehead, which is a contaminating company in Rockwood, three blocks from my house, they doubled their size, and they were granted to enlarge, and now the air's pretty stinking, much less. Now, in uh, November, uh, I attended an industrial board meeting at the Rockwood Industrial Board, and uh, one of the city councilmen, Dudley Evans, mentioned about fly ash being brought in the horsehead for processing but not to worry, there's a tarp over it. Okay? They get lead out of materials. I mean, we're talking two blocks from the Rockwood High School. This fly is being processed that close to the high school. Is anybody at TVA checking into that that you know of? Okay. And first, I'm, I'm sorry. This probably will come to no surprise to any of you guys. Kingston is not, thank goodness, my area of expertise. I'm really sorry that I'm used to working in kind of smaller watersheds and water streams and water quality and monitoring. With that, what I would like to ask is, like, maybe when this is over, if I can get your, your contact information, let me give you my yes. name and my phone number and my email address, and I can find the answers for you. Let me kind of make sure I get all That'd the notes fine. down. And um, anybody that has an interest in this, my name's Roberta Dennis, Rockwood, Tennessee, and at 416 West Wheeler Street. You can find me anytime. Because I do want to talk Please. with you, and I do want to get the information. I just, yes. honestly, I'm sorry I don't have the information for you. Okay, um, that, it definitely needs to go all the way up to the top. 
if they don't already know. And yeah, we, we need we a list. A lot of rumors, but yeah. it's good to hear. Yeah. You know. And we need a list. TVA needs to produce a list of all the trucking companies plus their subcontractors. That's part of the problem. You can have a contract, and they're talking about uh, somebody losing millions of dollars and they're going to bankruptcy. But the trucks that I see hauling stuff doesn't have the name of anybody that's even mentioned in the Knoxville paper. Thank you. Sorry, I can't be of any more help, but I'll, if you will, just when we're finished, let's get together. Thanks. I just had a couple of questions. One was when y'all were talking about water shortages and water being transported, the thought that occurred to me was I know there's been a lot of talk about the ice caps melting into the ocean and diluting the salt water with fresh water and that sort of thing. And I didn't know if there's anything going on that is uh, trying to figure out a way to divert some of that that is already melting and capturing it and using it in any way. You're smiling like you. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a really, yeah, um, this is actually kind of a funny story. Um, I used to work in California for the governor, and a guy named Rick Davidge, who's featured quite prominently in the movie Blue Gold, tried to get the State Water Quality Control Board to give him a permit to drag an iceberg, drag it behind this tugboat, and then station it out in the bay, and then we would just suck off all the water, and of course he would sell it for a premium, and it was a big joke, and I think he used to submit that every couple of years. Uh, yeah, you know, there's a lot of folks looking for ways to to capitalize on that, and you know, and and the the melting of the glaciers is a is a global climate change issue, and I think you know climate change may stop may well, it's not going to stop it, but it, it may reduce the decline to some degree. But there's real concern, I think, and you can probably answer this better about saltwater intru- or freshwater intrusion into saltwater and changing the pH and some other chemical characteristics. I don't know if you've got data on that or. Do you know anything about that? No, I, mean, I can speak a sure. little bit. Too. It just seems like that it would be, if it's going to melt anyway until we figure out whether it's a natural event or whether it's something that is affected by man, either way it's still happening. And in the meantime, if there's a water shortage, why not take advantage of that? And since there's nothing you can do to stop it, why just sit there and watch it happen? Yeah, and there are actually um, some areas of the world where they're trying to capture it, and it's actually become um, it's a little bit of a kind of touchy subject because you've got some of the ice melt that is coming off, and some folks, you know, like Renee, public-private, are staking claim to that and diverting it to their use. And other folks are like, no, 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 that's not, you know, we're used to the glacier melt kind of coming down slowly, seeping into the soils, you know, getting into the groundwater, recharging our rivers. And that's kind of how we're used to the natural hydrologic cycle of things. Well, with the increase of the, the glacier melts, like you talked about, we're actually getting like kind of a big wash and runoff, almost like it's having like a big storm. And so the water's coming much more quickly. It's eroding soils. So we're not getting the infiltration that we want and the recharge for the area rivers. Um, and it's actually a lot of it's evaporating. Um, mm-hmm. So we've got, you've got kind of that issue. And then you've got folks that are trying to, I guess what they were terming was siphoning off, which you know, has a dip- negative connotation, where some um, private companies are trying to grab some of that ice melt before it kind of gets anywhere. Yeah, it sounds like it's, there's a lot of issues and problems. But like when I said, we also, you know, if it does reach, you know, fresh water kind of mixing with salt water, that kind of has its own effects as far as, kind of messing with your carbon cycle and some other chemicals. But the, the biggest thing they're talking about is it being either snagged and privatized before it's allowed to soak into our rivers and recharge like we want it to, or just coming at a wash so great that it's actually causing soil erosion and other ecological problems. Yeah, I was going to say, um, along that same idea that Tiffany said about the soil erosion, they've been noticing that in China as the glaciers in the Himalayas have been accelerating some of the melting. It's not all parts of the, the glaciers, but some parts have been. There's been more of a scraping of the land, and actually what they're, they're seeing is more of a desertification where you actually uh, you know hard pan the soils, and so you, you basically break up the hydrologic cycle. You're not able to get that good soil moisture and that good rotation of your, of your moisture. So that's been an issue that they've been seeing, especially in China. The other thing that I thought of, too, was while you were talking uh, about living in the Latin American countries, and particularly Mexico City, uh, I spent some time in the Sonoma area of Mexico, which is more the central, northern central part. And one of the most interesting things I found there was that in some of these outlying areas where they are very poor, they were telling us you would see these water towers outside of each house, because these neighborhoods 
their water that was provided publicly would be every other day. They, their water would be turned off, and so they would have these water towers where they would collect rainwater to use on the off day, where half the city would have water from uh, public use, and then they would have their own private sources. And I thought it was an excellent idea, and I would think that that could be used in a lot of countries no, I think that's a great idea. I know we've worked a little bit in Guatemala in a, a little community called La Florida, and it's got the same situation where it's got a, a rainy season and a dry season, and we've been trying to encourage them to build more rainwater harvesting facilities, but out of local materials rather than the plastics and stuff, trying to do it with river stones and cement blocks and things like that that you know the local people could invest in rather than having to be important the, importing the technology. And it's really kind of taken off. Often in Africa, especially, too, rainwater harvesting is getting to be a big deal right now. In uh, Cochabamba, you could see that. And even in places like Santa Domingo, a big major city like that, you'd see these hotels, and they've got these little cisterns on top of their roofs because everybody is just desperate to keep the water when the electricity goes out because you lose the water pressure. So the idea is that everybody pumps the water up to these big containers up on their roofs. And even when I was living in um, an apartment in Santa Domingo, everybody, you'd fill up your bathtub with water, had water in it all the time. You had buckets full of water all the time. I mean, you're, you just basically, just every chance you had, any container you had, you stored water in because for that exact reason you didn't know when the water might go out or when the pressure would get so low that you couldn't even get pressure out of the sink. Mm -hmm. So things that we just take for granted here that you're always going to have good water pressure. Good point. Um, I'm Carol Montgomery. I used to live in the Sultanate of Oman for 10 years, and they started on the same subject. They started building earthen dams um, across their dry riverbeds, the wadis, because when it would rain, which it did now and then, it was devastating, but this would hold the water and then it would soak into the aquifers, which was a good thing because they were using a lot of aquifer water for the coastal plain, where, which was the agricultural plain, and that was getting very salty and palm trees were dying. Thank you. I'm, I'm Jerry Thornton. I've not read the book that's reviewed, and uh, it's obvious from what's been said about it that even in areas where there's plenty of water, there's constant issues of how that water is distributed, whether it's privately owned or publicly owned, and whether it's cleaned up or not, and whether there's wastewater treatment and all of that. But I was curious as to whether the book addresses the problem uh, that in many places in the world, particularly where there's not much water naturally, that there's not really a water problem but a too-many-people problem. It seems to me that in much of the world, water problems boil down to the fact that there's just way too many people trying to use the water. And it seems to me that the only way to ever get a handle on the water problem in a lot of places is for governments to encourage people to have fewer children so that there's less people to use the water. And a lot of these problems would go a long way to solving themselves. I guess I could just make one comment. Obviously, I think she kind of stays away from that subject just because of, obviously, the kind of uh, nature of it would, you know, with some of the civilizations or groups that she works with, maybe think it'll, it may be a little offensive, you know, and I personally don't, but I'm just thinking that could be why a lot of these authors or the documentary editors decide to kind of stay away from that. But if you haven't read this book, The World Without Us, it is really interesting. And he, he plays it out flat at the end. He says 1.8 billion people. That's what this planet can support. And I have to kind of admire the author of that book, that he, he puts the number out there. And most people are afraid to. And, and that was his number. Tiffany, I think it was you that mentioned uh, political leaders failing us. Would you uh, or someone comment on the recent Supreme Court ruling about uh, no limitations on donations from corporations and if that's going to help or hurt the situation? I think what ends up happening with campaigns is now we've created a situation, I think, where you can get the candidate you buy. And corporations like, you know, these big water privatization organizations now can come in and go to a little community like Pulaski and buy all the airtime, buy all the billboards, buy all the radio time, and completely keep a smaller candidate from who's a little bit more friendly to these issues out of the running. So... 
It was a pretty unfortunate decision. There are two other Supreme Court decisions, I might add, that have really made this problem difficult. One was the Swank decision in 2000. And that led to a decision in 2006 called the Rapanos, which basically said, you've got to find a significant nexus between these waters in order for it to be protected. And that's caused a lot of issues over water protection. What is a water of the nation and a water of the state? What gets protected? What doesn't? And it's going to take years for the court to clear that up. So the Supreme Court is very important in these issues. They can make or break, you know, whether we have protection or not. I'd like to point out that the Fair Elections Now Act has been introduced, and it's got a House number and a Senate number, and they're also working on a constitutional amendment. Cool. Um, If you're interested in local issues, I'm going to send around our our sign-up sheet for our e-news. It comes out twice a month, except during legislative session when it comes out um, every week. So if you guys are interested in finding out more uh, about what's going on in water in Tennessee, sign up. The bad, some of the bad bills are still in play, put together by a group calling themselves the Responsible Water Use Coalition, the Home Builders Association, the Road Builders Association, the Farm Bureau, the Paper Council, the Mining Association, and a law firm that represents them all put these bills together. So we don't really think they're that responsible. But um, there are 20 introduced bills this year, excellent bills. Senator Marrero out of Memphis gets a big thank you from everybody. She's doing a fabulous job. I think there's one more question. You talked earlier about uh, the fact that there's a lot of privatization, and I believe Chattanooga, their water uh, utilities is privatized. But evidently Chattanooga had a sewage treatment plant, had Mm -hmm. a power outage over the weekend. Yeah, Yeah, it was bad. And released quite a bit of untreated sewage into the Tennessee River. Do you know any of the details about that? And, And is that more indicative of a private utility as opposed to a public, or now, is it I, pretty much... I believe the Chattanooga system only privatized their drinking water. Okay. So. so their sewer is, I believe, still publicly owned. And that sewage treatment plant has had a lot of problems over the years. It's like, you know, a lot of infrastructure in this country. We have not made investments in infrastructure here. It's hard to get money from Congress. It's hard to justify raising rates in order to keep infrastructure at pace with its degradation. So, I mean, this is something we have to start thinking about now is, you know, it starts to fall apart. You know, we had a bridge collapse in Minneapolis, and, you know, our sewage treatment plants are in big trouble. Our drinking water plants are very old. I mean, we're going to need to be putting significant resources into these infrastructures in order to make sure that our rivers are clean and that we're healthy. And But remember, in a public system, you have more pressure points. In a private system, they do what they want. People often say, what can I do? And I say, as good as turning off the tap is when you brush your teeth, it is better to get to know your decision maker. Get to know your legislator and let that person know that you want clean water because they hear every day at the Legislative Plaza from the Mining Association, the Home Builders, the Road Builders, the Farm Bureau, and if they don't hear from you, they're going to do what they want. So get to know your legislator. We're putting up a new website February 15th. It's going to have a Find Your Legislator page. It's going to have all the bills on it. Um, We'll be updating our legislative page hopefully next week, so it'll be current. So um, definitely get involved. Join a movement. Get on our e-news, find out how you can get involved. Yeah. Thank you all for coming, and it was great to have this much interest. And if you all have questions, we can talk to you. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, Reference Librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.